great to have you with us. Again, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here. If you snuck in there, and uh, that's Eden, and she's awesome. So glad that you're here. I want you to think back to uh, early on Christmases for you. For some of you, that's a little easier than us others. But I want you to think back to how you gave and received gifts. Because this is the season of giving. That's good. It's also the receiving of gifts. That's pretty good, right? So I'll give you something, but I'm kind of hoping you have something for me, right? That's kind of nice. Sometimes that's out of obligation, and that's not nice. That's just tension-filled. But sometimes it's, it's this mutual, we want to give, receive type thing. How many of you grew up in a family where the whole idea of getting gifts, um, kind of you're the type of person that's a planner, you're a thinker. You like uh, strategizing where things are going. You are the person that kind of likes to kind of know what you're getting. And so maybe you grew up in the family that you would uh, you take the catalog that comes out like on Thanksgiving and you would circle things and then you would push that in front of your parents and say, these are the four items that you may get me, right? For those of you who are young, a uh, catalog is just the internet printed out with stapled together, okay? So that's really... All a catalog is, it's just printed out on paper, stapled together. So um, basically, how many of you grew up in a family where you told people in your family what you would like, and then you kind of acted surprised when you opened it? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. How many of you grew up in the other type of family, because it's usually just one or the other, that uh, you did not want to impose on anyone, and so you just kind of waited for your gift, and then you pretended to be surprised that you liked it. Anyone like that? Okay. Okay. A few of you. Um, and because it's, it's interesting how people go about it. Sometimes you may take a, like screen captures, what my kids do. They'll take a screen capture. They'll text it to me, be like, dad, this is, this is it. And, and I'm supposed to save that and keep that around. And other times it's like, we just want to surprise. And then you have those gifts that you get like from the distant aunt or the distant uncle. And you're kind of like, Hey, another sweater. Um, and you conveniently forgot to send a card to them this year. So uh, you're kind of hoping that tradition dies out. And maybe there's different traditions with giving, receiving. There's so many different traditions. How many of you grew up in the tradition that you were allowed to open one gift on Christmas Eve? One. Like it was in the Bible, you could only do one, right? Like your mother and father were like, no, no more than one. How many of you grew up opening, you know, like you were the impatient people. You never waited till Christmas morning. You just opened everything Christmas Eve. A few of you sitting right there in the middle together. Okay, so um, I don't know. There's so many different traditions. We have different food traditions that go with Christmas. We have different uh, travel schedules. Uh, I know some of you who are newly married, you're kind of figuring this all out. As you get newly married, it's this idea of, okay, do, do we do two Christmases? Is it Christmas this year with this family? Christmas this, you know, next year with this family? There's so many different traditions with that, right? And there's a lot of stressful times that come along with Christmas. In fact, there's a lot of mixed messages that get sent around Christmas time. A lot of different stories that are told. And, and some are great and some are awesome. But some kind of confuse things and they kind of challenge and begin to struggle. I, I found um, maybe a picture that, this is a globe that you could buy. I think it's from Home Depot for sixty nine ninety five. You can get this. And it kind of brings the best of all of Christmas together. And I think we have that snow globe. Let's see if we, you really can't see it. Okay, let me describe this 
it's Santa holding baby Jesus. Okay? So you got Santa Claus holding baby Jesus all together. In a lot of ways, we look at that. Anyone, like, moved by that? Like, you're like, oh. If you do, it's at Home Depot. You can go get it for 70 bucks. Um, I'm not moved that much by it, so I choose not to get it. But, hey, freedom to you. Uh, there's, there's grace. So in a lot of ways, when I was looking through um, a picture, in a lot of ways, this kind of captures the confusion of Christmas. It's a simple thing, but in a lot of ways, it kind of highlights the fact that there's so many different messages, so many different stories that are unfolding around the Christmas season. Now, tonight, what I want to try to do is declutter Christmas. And in a very simple way, go back to the original Christmas story and just tell you what it says from the scriptures. Now, for some of you, you've been in church a long time. And the mere fact that I've said that, now you go, ah, 25 minutes. But here's the deal. There's a lot of confusion that even happens to us. And a lot of times when it gets to this Christmas season, we can get so um, chaotic. We can get so tired. Uh, I don't know if you're feeling that already, that it's just this weight of all the expectations that come with Christmas, all the expectations maybe you put on yourself, maybe the ones that are put on you from other people. There's so many different stories that sometimes we feel like we have to do everything to cover all of our Christmas bases so that no one gets disappointed and no one gets hurt, no one gets left out. You ever feel that tension? And in a lot of ways, um, the simplicity and the beauty of the Christmas story from God's vantage point can get cluttered, can become diluted in a lot of ways. So we begin to to mix so many stories together, it just dilutes maybe the most powerful story that's there. And the one that we need to re-anchor ourselves to. Now for some of you here, maybe you're kind of coming back into the whole church scene. Maybe you haven't ever been to church. And tonight's your first night, and I think it's awesome that you're here. I know it takes courage to come to a new place. And so I hope tonight, in a very clear way, you can hear this story in a way that'll meet you where you're at. Because here's the deal with the Christmas story from God's point of view. It requires an action step. It's not a story you can just hear and go, that's a nice story. It's a challenging story. And it it requires a response to it. And tonight at the end, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Christmas story. And so I'm just telling you where we're going. And and so this, this story of Christmas is such a beautiful beautiful thing. It's this kind of what we looked at. Lyle mentioned this, that God is with us. He's Emmanuel. And tonight, looking at this notion of God is a God who is for us. And so often we grow up thinking that God is distant, God is distracted, God is against us. Maybe that's why um, so many people look at the church or they look at God and they say, God, why are you so against us? And maybe you've had trauma happen in your life, and, and you can begin to let your brain even begin to drift that way, right? Well, I think we all drift that way in certain seasons of life. But when you look through the scriptures, you realize over and over God is declaring, I'm a God who's actually for you. And that's what I want us to look into tonight. As God is for us, that's the big thing that comes out of this Christmas story. So I want to declutter Christmas a little bit. And I want to start with the very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 2. If you have version, you can follow along with notes on there. I have all the sermon notes on there. I'll have it on the screen as well. Luke chapter 2, this declaration comes out to shepherds. 
and this amazing good news. Now, how many of you have ever received good news in life? Anyone ever won a contest before? No, just a couple of us. Okay, I've entered like every contest. It's a game with our kids. We just try to enter everything. We even make up email sometimes uh, so we can enter a contest if we don't want to get the, the kickback from that. And this week, I got an email. And it said, Starbucks for life. And I thought, the Lord has heard my prayers. And I thought, for sure, this is the deal. Like, if there's ever a contest that I want to win, it is this one, right? Anyone else get this message this week? Okay, a few of you. Oh, I'm not so special. So uh, I get this email, right? And it says, enter this code. I entered the code that I had for my receipt, and, and I entered it all in, and it goes to this gold-glittered page on the line. And I thought, gold means winner. And I couldn't see anything. It was just covered in glitter. And I realized soon you had to take the mouse and like, uh, I don't have a mouse, so I have the trackpad thing, and, and you have to erase all the glitter, right? And at the end, when you get it all done, it just says, you're not a winner. And I was like, I am a winner. You don't tell me what to do. Um, <coughs> but I obviously didn't win the contest. But then it said, okay, well, you can enter for the next 20 days, like through the end of the year. Like you could just, every time you go to Starbucks, some of you who are baristas or baristas, Bristos? Anyway, uh, male version. So um, you're there, and uh, you, you get receipts, and you give out receipts to people, and you can enter the contest. So the next day, I went, and I met someone at Starbucks, and I took the receipt home, all giddy-like, and I entered the code, and then it went into that vicious cycle that is so depressing, where you enter your code, and you do it right, and then it tells you you've entered it wrong, and then you go back, and you spend the next five minutes re-entering it correctly, only to be in the vicious cycle of disappointment that you've entered it wrong again. And I look, I'm yelling at my computer going, I've not entered this wrong. This is supposed to be good news. And it was not. Uh, I was just in this vicious cycle. So for any of you who understand this, I'm really stumped by this. I've entered the code correctly with space, without space. I don't know what I'm doing. But I'm apparently not going to win this contest. And it's very disappointing to me. So I feel better now. Um, your therapy, it's nice. So sometimes the announcement of good news comes with strings attached, doesn't it? Anyone ever got an email from a prince overseas? <laughs> Listen, I'm just going to help you out right now if you are young and naive, okay? If some prince emails you that you've never heard of asking for $500 and they're going to send you a million dollars, that is too good to be true, okay? It's not true. Don't email them. Don't help out the cycle of this. That's a scam, right? You would hear that. You go, that's a scam. And so much of the good news we hear these days feels like a scam, doesn't it? That at the end of the day, there's fine print and some fast-talking lawyer that's going to come out of the blue and just hit you, right? And it's not really true. What you think is true. The gold-glittered page really is empty, and there's nothing really behind it. And so this announcement of good news so often in our, our culture comes with this, this string attached and this, um, we have this vantage point where we say, that's not really true. And I wonder if that's how the shepherds felt on the night that the angel breaks forth. And so can we just read this in Luke chapter 2? So in Luke chapter 2, here's my Starbucks receipt. You can help me, okay? So I had it in there just so you know I wasn't lying. Okay. <coughs> 
Verse 9, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, uh, which is sheep. They're watching sheep. Okay, so because we don't really have flocks that we watch over. So an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. There's that word again. We talked about that last week. When God shows up, it gets a little scary at times. And so their first words, do not be what? <laughs> don't be afraid. Chill. Chill. Don't be afraid. The angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring what? Good news that will cause great joy for who? All the people. I bring good news that will be for all the people. Today in the town of of David, a savior, not a self-help plan, not a philosophy, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts, more angels, appeared with the angel and praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go check this out. The shepherds. They're the lone lives of the society. They're the people that never get invited to the parties. They're the people that get walked past, stepped over, and missed and avoided in culture. This is good news of great joy that will be for who? All people. See, the good news of Christmas and the good news of the gospel is not news just for someones. The someones with the right bank accounts, the someones with the right skin color, the someones with the right background checks, the someones with the the right connections. The good news is a news for all people. There is no strings attached. And that, my friends, I think in the culture in which we live, and the day in which we live, We need to pause and reflect on that a little bit more. Remember the old children's song? Jesus loves the little children. Red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in his sight. This is good news for all people. I think in our day, given present circumstances, this is a good reminder. Don't you? This is good news of great joy for all people. No matter backgrounds, no matter skin color, no matter what their background check would turn out to be. This is an availability of life with God given and offered to anyone and everyone. Now, it's still a choice. It still requires an action to it, a response, if you will. We're getting there. But this is good news, that shepherds who are typically looked over, passed over, passed by, get included in the first string of communication. And that this is such good news for them that they're told to go and share about it. And they can't help. They're included into this good news that radically changes them. A Savior has been born, has been given to them. This is good news. I think sometimes, though, we can still think there's a string attached. Well, good news 
if you're weak in faith, right? Good news if you're not just a thinker. It's good news or whatever stipulation you want to put to it. We can almost project strings onto the gospel and onto the Christmas story. But I want you to look at it from their vantage point back in the first century when this news was first proclaimed. Because the reason this is good news is because it's set against a backdrop of the news of the day. And that's what I want you to see. I want you to see the news that was dominating the day in which this angel would show up and burst into the scene and say, today good news is coming your way. Remember last week we looked at the difference of the pages between Malachi chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1, the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it represented 400 years of God's silence. Remember we said God's silence does not equal his absence. He was at work behind the scenes, and he was up to something, and he was up to something, and he was up to interrupting, and that his interruptions are divine uh, interventions on our behalf. That's what this Christmas story is, that God is with us, and that God is for us. But see, the dominant news of the day stems and flows from the reality of what people knew, of how you would have a relationship back then. See, for thousands of years... Before that message of good news, there was a message, there was a way, there was news that lived before it. There was a lot of religious activity aimed at God and a way that you can have relationship with God and how you were to live that out. See, God, his intention from the very beginning of humanity, from the very beginning of creation was to be in relationship with his creation and with his highlight of creation, humanity. But we chose our own way. We said, God, we can do it better than you. And we left. And we broke faith with God. And we chose our own path. And sin entered the picture, right? And sin is not just breaking an arbitrary rule. God said, don't eat from that tree. That just broke an arbitrary rule. Sin is deeper than that. Sin always fractures relationships, doesn't it? It's not just breaking an arbitrary rule. It's violating a relationship. And from the very beginning... God has established us to be in relationship with him, but we violated that relationship. We turned our back, and we said we can do it better. And so sin enters the picture. And then you remember back to the Old Testament. Here's the Old Testament summed up real quickly. It gets messed up at the very beginning. And God puts into play a plan to win back relationship with people, to establish a way for people, an imperfect, broken people, to relate to a holy, perfect God. And the whole Old Testament is moving toward and moving forward in this plan. See, Christmas starts actually way back here. Not just after 400 years of silence, but way back at the beginning. This whole plan of establishing a relationship with a person, Abram. And with Abraham and his family and his lineages to a people, to a nation. And this nation is Israel. And they're caught up in captivity, right, for hundreds of years in Egypt. And God sends a rescuer. God says, Moses, I'm picking you. I'm going to bring my people out, and I'm going to establish a relationship with them. See, the Ten Commandments that we know about, that we see maybe on a courthouse somewhere, we have watched a movie about, we've seen. See, that wasn't just a list of rules. That really was a contract about relationship. Here's how we're going to relate one to another, God's saying. Here's how we're going to relate one to another, and here's how I want you to relate one to another next to you. Because you've been in this captivity. You've been living out and oppressed for so long. We have to establish a new way to do things. A new way for us to relate. 
And so God begins to establish this relationship with this people. And these people begin to, to follow, begin to lean into this. But somewhere along the way, they begin worshiping the rules and not the one who gave them. And they traded what was given to them for the very one, uh, from the one who gave it to them. And they begin worshiping these things. They begin actually examining these things and adding on to them in a way that they begin to use these rules to establish who is in and who is out. And who was worthy and who wasn't. And who was measured up and who God actually liked and who God didn't. Right? And so you start looking through the Old Testament and you start looking at all the ways the religious leaders of the day began tacking on. And what God intended for a relationship, man turned into religion. And that's the Old Testament in a lot of ways. It can be summed up in maybe some simple phrases like that. What God intended, and pretty soon what happened for thousands of years, the news that dominated the day, is these are the things you need to do for God. Here's all the things you need to do if you want to be right with God. This is what you got to do if you want to be for God. If you want God to understand you, if you want God to relate with you, you've got to do these things. And here's what I know about a people. When you live by a set of rules, it's very tiring. It's very taxing. It's very easy to be judgmental. And it's very easy, if you stick with it long enough, to get to the place where you realize you'll never do enough, right? You'll never measure up. These are the things I need to do for God. These are the certain ways that I need to pray. These are the certain times I need to do this. These are the certain times I need to do that. Certainly, these are the things that I need to avoid. Here's the certain things, ways that I need to behave. Here's certain days of the year that I need to attend. Here's the certain sacrifices that I need to offer. And here's the certain ways that I need to do it. And I need to do my part for God before I can ever be right with God. And that's exhausting. And I know a lot of people who have tried that. I know a lot of people who live on that treadmill, trying to do enough for God. I have to do things for Him. See, day after day, day after day, year after year, century after century, that was the dominant news of the day. Here's the things you need to do for God. That's not really good news. It's news. It's kind of oppressive. It's kind of depressing. It's kind of exhausting. But that was the news that came. So you fast forward a little bit, and they got really good at this. They got really creative in how you would do this. They got really creative in how they would add on to it. In fact, if you look through the Bible, you'll see people who tried with every bit of their gusto to live this out. In fact, maybe the certain character in the New Testament that you look at that tried uh, with great fervor to live this way, to do the things that he needed to do for God was Saul. In fact, Saul was so super religious that he exceeded people's expectations. And he began uh, kind of rise in the religious ranks, if you will. In fact, if you had a prayer request that you were praying for for a week, I guarantee you Saul had already fasted a month for it. If you had trying to live to live up the religious rules and you were working really hard to do it, I guarantee Saul had already done it and he was writing new ones. That's how much fervor Saul had 
for this idea of religion, this idea of I've got to do things for God. And then one day, he has an encounter with Jesus that changed everything for him. And this super uber religious dude began to understand things from a different perspective. And he began to see what Christmas was really all about in Jesus. One day, Saul has this amazing encounter with Jesus. It wrecks his life. It completely changes him. It revolutionizes him. In fact, he goes from being Saul to being Paul. He's named. His life is revolutionized. In fact, he wrote half of the New Testament that you hold in your Bible and that I hold in mine. His life is completely radically changed. And this man, who had spent so much passion and energy doing things for God, completely undone by the news of what God had done for him through Jesus. That's the Christmas story. That somewhere along the way, even this guy, Saul, who became Paul, got the hint that it wasn't about what I do for God. It's about all the things God's done for me. God is a God who is for me. And that's why this is good news with no strings attached. This good news offer to say it's available and that you have to respond to it in some way, shape, or form because it's a story that calls for it. And so Paul changes his whole tune, changes his whole life. The whole trajectory of where he was going is completely altered and he begins falling after this Jesus and proclaiming him and writing half of the New Testament. And one day in Romans, in the book of Romans, he's reflecting back on the Christmas story, if you will. And I just want to read three verses from here, unpack it a little bit, and then draw a simple conclusion, okay? So Paul is reflecting back on this idea of the Christmas story. Here's what he says in chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, stop right there, at just the right time, at the perfect timing, Anyone ever had perfect timing happen in your life? Maybe you were sitting there sweating bullets before the test. And at just the right time, in walks a sub. Am I right? Can I get an amen? And you're like, postponed. Resurrection. You're saved. Maybe it's the perfect timing of a job where you've been out of work for a little while and you've been longing to try to, and the bank account's dwindling and you get a phone call at just the right time. And all of a sudden God puts you on a path of moving forward in life again, right? Just the right time when a friend calls and says, hey, I, I'm going to come over and we need to do something because I know you're stressed, right? Maybe it's simple things. Maybe it's big things. But at just the right time. And see, Paul's reflecting back on history. And at just the right time, in the moment of history, when this religion and this religious pursuit had grown to this incredible fervor, at just the right time, God did something. What did we say that was? <laughs> this intervention, right? This divinely timed interruption into history at just the right time when we were still powerless to do anything for God. Christ died for the ungodly. And that's you and that's me. And if you're a good person, that may be a hard phrase to swallow. But you need to choke on it. Because it is you. 
and it is me. See, when we could do nothing for God, Christ died for us. He went first. What thousands of years of religion was powerless to do, Christ grew up and did for you and for me. He goes on, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. A righteous person is someone who is following the rules, who is kind of doing the right things. You would say that person must be right with God because they're doing things for God, right? That must be a righteous person. Very rarely will someone die for someone like that. Though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. See, a righteous person lives in this pursuit of, I've got to do more, I've got to do more. And they live in this path where I've got to do more for God. And somewhere along the way, I bet they wake up and they realize, I can never do enough. I can never do enough. And they just get tired. A good person, they live with the philosophy of, I just do enough good stuff. I know I'm bad and I know I'm broken. And I know I've got some skeletons in the closet. But if I do enough good stuff, then maybe that'll tip the scales in my favor, just enough at the end, right? That's how a good person lives. But here's the problem with that, is you never know how good is good enough. You never know. You never know if the scale kind of gets tipped in your direction. And so you live with this pursuit of, I I just got to do more. And the righteous person lives with that same pursuit, and both paths are flawed. Because at the end of the day, you can't do enough. But then verse 8, Paul reflects back. See, Paul lived this life, and even he recognized it in the end. It's not about what I do for God. It's all about God. It's always been about God. It will always be about Him. And here's what he says. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still powerless, while we were still broken, while we were still separated. Christ died for us. Christ died for me, for my shame, for my brokenness, for my sin. That I don't have to live on the treadmill. I don't have to try to do things for God. See, the angels didn't show up that night and say, I have good news. God has given you a new set of rules. Good luck. Right? That's not good news, is it? See, it's not good news unless it's good news for everybody. It's not good news unless it's truly good news for everybody. And the good news is simply this. God's for you, friend. He's so for you that that's why the Christmas story is here to remind you. That he's for you in this life and all through the beginning. Maybe this is the bottom line what I wrote. That baby who came to be with you became the man who died for you. That's the Christmas story. It doesn't stop in a manger. It moves forward to a cross and, more importantly, to a resurrection. That the baby who came to say that I'm God with you grew up to be the God who said, I'm a God who's for you, and I'll go first. And I'll make a way for a relationship to be available to you. See, knowing that reality, knowing the true Christmas story, and the beauty and the simplicity And the profoundness of that requires a response. It's one of three responses. It's either I look at that story and I listen to that story and I go, hey, that's a nice story. No thanks, God. 
And you can choose that response. You could choose a different response. Maybe it's looking at that story and hearing that story and going, God, man, that sounds too good to be true. Sounds like there's strings attached. I'm just going to keep working really hard for you to try to make this relationship work. And I hope it works out in the end and the scales tip in my favor. And I'd say you could do that if you want. That's certainly a response that you can choose. And if you want to own that, go right ahead. My hunch is, at some point, you're going to wake up exhausted. You're going to wake up mad. You're going to wake up frustrated and angry. And what you will have found is that you are creating your own religion. See, what God has intended from the very beginning is that we would be in relationship with him. That we would walk with him in the cool of your day. From the very beginning, that has been his heart. And when we broke that and we fractured that, he'd put in motion a plan that said this isn't about you trying to work really hard. In fact, this was always about you working and realizing that you couldn't. So that you get to the place where you'd say help. Because here's the third response. Is to hear that story and go, I need to cash in on that story. I need that story to be my story. And I need to surrender and trust in Jesus. That's the response that God's looking for. That may not be the response you want to give, but that's the one he longs for you to have because that's the one where his power and his grace can be released into your life. Because that baby who came to proclaim that I'm a God who's with you grew up to be the man who said, I am willing to die for you, that you may have life in me. That is the simple, profound Christmas story, friends. That's the story that we in our lives, as followers of Jesus, if that's you, get to be continued storytellers. And in a season that's full of confusion, full of lots of traditions, and full of lots of different kinds of news, that's the good news that we get to now champion in the way that we live our lives, in the way we interact, the ways we react, the ways we uh, communicate with people. It's constantly being part of the storytellers. That there is a good news that's out there that doesn't come with strings attached. And it's available to you. And it deserves some kind of response. You can choose the response. But you must choose. In fact, I told you at the very beginning, I was going to give you an opportunity for you to respond to that news. And so I want to walk you through that. And I told you, it's very simple. You can look at that story and go, God, you know, no thanks. Nice story. That's a nice one. I'll put it up there with Rudolph. No thanks. You can look at that story and you can respond to it and say, yeah, that, man, that means putting a lot of trust in God. That means stop doing all the work myself. And I'm kind of a self-starter and I'm pretty determined and I'm pretty driven. And I think I'm just going to do it myself, Jack. I'm just going to work and I'm just going to be really, really good in life. And I'm going to hope it works out in the end. And, that, and that's cool if you want to do that. I think you'll find that exhausting because I've been there. And that's what I discovered. And then the third opportunity, the third possibility of response is to simply come to a place where you say, God, man, I'm tired of doing it myself. And I just want to lean in your direction. That this Christmas story and this Christmas story of good news really is good news actually for me because good news isn't good news unless it's good news for everyone. And I'm one of the everyone's. And so if that's you tonight, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond through prayer. 
Uh, very simply, in fact, Paul goes on and writes a couple chapters later in the book of Romans. He kind of symbolizes, kind of calculates uh, this idea of the gospel. And he says, here's what you do. Here's what a response looks like. He says words like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. That isn't this ritual thing that you have to do. It's just simply acknowledging the fact that that day a Savior was born. A self-help plan wasn't given. A Savior was born for you. God is for you. And He took care of everything so that you can cash in on a relationship with Him and you can ride His coattails through life. That you get to work in partnership with Him moving forward as He leads you. That's a beautiful place of rest. And that's what Jesus said. You come to me, all you who are weary, tired of trying to do this religion thing. You come to me. That's relational language, isn't it? You trust in me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The way we do life together will be the right way, and you'll know it. It is. But you've got to choose that. And so I'm going to lead you through a prayer in a moment. And if that's you... Uh, We're all going to bow our heads, and I'm just going to lead you through a simple prayer. You can make your own words. These aren't magical words. They're just simple words that acknowledge uh, what Paul said. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And so maybe it's simple words like this. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming in this Christmas story to rescue me. Thanks for being a Savior. Thanks for forgiving me. Come into my life and lead me forward. Help me to become everything that you dream me to be. Thank you, Jesus. I give you my life. Amen.